President Trump names Brett Kavanaugh as his nominee to the United States Supreme Court. Democrats begin their attack on Kavanaugh. Republicans begin their defense. Both sides begin to raise campaign cash off of the rhetoric. What is the process? What questions should senators raise? When will the vote happen? All of this and more with our exclusive guest, Utah Senator Mike Lee, on this episode of Therefore What? Therefore What? is a weekly podcast that breaks down the news while breaking down barriers, challenges you in the status quo, explores timely topics and timeless principles, and leaves you confident to face what's next. I'm Boyd Matheson, opinion editor for the Deseret News, and this is Therefore What? We are very pleased today to be joined by Utah Senator Mike Lee. Senator, thanks for joining us on Therefore What? Thank you very much. It's good to be with you. Well, obviously, it's been a a big couple of days back there in Washington. The president making his announcement uh, of Brett Kavanaugh as his nominee for the Supreme Court. Uh, You were actually on that list, part of that process. Uh, Give us a little insight into what that process was like. Uh, How did it feel going through that process? Well, as you know, the president had a couple dozen people on on a list uh, that he had identified uh, initially as a candidate for president of the United States. And little by little, uh, the president whittled down that list. And uh, over time, he got down to just a few people. And uh, uh, then he made his final determination with, sometime within the last 24 hours or so and announced last night that it would be Brett, Brett Kavanaugh. So it's an interesting experience. Um, uh, not always easy to discern from the outside, even as somebody who was on the list. But uh, it was exciting, and it was a great honor to be considered. It's always interesting as as these kinds of things happen. Uh, there, there is sort of the uh, uh, the public media game in terms of kind of the prognostication and a little bit of horse race betting in terms of uh, who the inside folks are. Uh, what was it like to be on the inside uh, of that? Well, it was interesting, uh, in part because information travels very quickly, and it was hard to keep track of which sources were accurate. There were, there were a lot of... Um, people purporting to have inside knowledge of what was going on. And um, many of those turned out to be accurate in the sense that many of them were predicting early on that Brett Kavanaugh was a favorite, and uh, and he turned out to be. But it, it, it was kind of interesting because from one hour to the next, you'd sometimes hear completely inconsistent rumors about what was likely to occur. I can't imagine that. Rumors in Washington not being accurate. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? It's a very, very strange thing, but it, it's been known to happen every once in a while. Well, you, you've been a Supreme Court watcher uh, since the time you were very, very, very young. Yeah, you grew up watching the, the Supreme Court uh, and obviously have great respect for it there. As, as you look at how the process turns now, uh, with your appreciation for what the court is, uh, what do you think we ought to be looking for uh, as we kind of move into this next phase? I think we ought to be looking for someone who is willing to read and interpret the law, first of all, with the assumption up front that there is a right answer. Um, the law itself provides a right answer. It's important for a judge or a Supreme Court justice to have that in mind when approaching the law. The fact that not everybody is going to agree on what that answer is, the fact that getting to that answer might be difficult and reasonable minds might disagree as to what the right answer is, doesn't excuse the jurist from starting from the assumption there is a right answer and that he or she's got to find it. So what I hope, what I expect to discover about Brett Kavanaugh is that he's one of those jurists who starts from 
that standpoint uh, of saying, let's let's look at what the law says and um, make sure that we apply it correctly in this case. When a statute is being interpreted, they should be looking at what the words of the statute uh, itself have to say. Uh, If it's a constitutional provision, they should be looking at the constitutional language itself. And in each instance, that might sound obvious, but in decades past, we've had a lot of members of the Supreme Court and of other courts, for that matter, who have been disturbingly willing and even inclined uh, to look to other things beyond the law in deciding cases. Uh, I thought it was really interesting, uh, just in in doing a little bit of background, uh, I thought it was was really interesting to note that the Supreme Court justice actually takes two oaths, um, different from anyone else in in government, in that they first take an oath to the Constitution, which all federal employees uh, take, with the exception of the president. His is slightly different. Uh, so that obligation to uh, to the, the Constitution. And then the second oath is, is of course, the judicial oath, uh, that they will administer justice without respect to person and so on. Uh, what do you think we learn from the oath, and how should that really inform the kinds of questions that should be asked uh, to, uh, uh, to the judge as he goes through this nomination process? The judicial oath reinforces the oath to the Constitution, but makes clear that jurists have a more defined role. It's a narrower role, that they're they're supposed to decide cases um, without respect to who the parties are, without respect to considerations outside of the case and beyond the applicable law. So that's an important point. Uh, If they are being faithful, first of all, to their oath to the Constitution and secondarily to their judicial oath, uh, they will behave as they should, and they will not be trying to act as policymakers, trying to act as legislators or executives, and they'll be deciding cases. This is the basic difference between the exercise of will and the exercise of judgment. Uh, this is something that Alexander Hamilton explained in Federalist Number 78, um, where he said, uh, will is what's exercised by a lawmaker, and judgment is exercised by a judge. There's a big difference between those two. And if judges ever start to exercise will instead of judgment or in addition to judgment, uh, it, it will end up messing up the, the very processes uh, that are at the foundation of our constitutional system. Uh, I think that's such an important thing for all of us to, uh, to recognize, that, uh, that idea of will versus judgment. Uh, and that separation of powers, I, I think we've uh, clouded that in many ways in society, that it seems that the... Uh, the legislative branch has, has abdicated a lot of power and authority to the executive branch and that the, uh, the judicial branch seems to be doing more legislating, uh, particularly in the lower courts. Uh, what do you think the answer is to that? And again, is there anything we can learn as we go through uh, this process with this particular nominee? Well, I think the answer is, first of all, to have more public awareness of the difference between each branch of government. I think it helps... Um, helps people elect better lawmakers in the first instance when we have a more widespread conversation about what the difference is between the role of the lawmaker and the role of the judge or the Supreme Court justice. Uh, But I also think that when we go through things like the Senate confirmation process, um, at least this group of elected lawmakers uh, consisting of U.S. senators have the opportunity to um, advise and provide their consent or lack thereof for a presidential nominee uh, to a, an office like this one. And so that's part of uh, why this process is important, part of how the average citizen can end up having some impact. If if each citizen makes sure that uh, their, their um, 
elected senators are asking the right questions and are looking for the kinds of people who will interpret the law based on what it says rather than on the basis of what they wish it meant uh, will be better served. Oh, that, that's a that's a great insight. And, and that really leads to the, the next portion of the program, which is they, they call these things hearings. Um, and, and my interpretation is that in order for people to hear, they actually have to listen, which means they have to stop talking. Uh, you're you're someone who who knows his way around a, a courtroom, uh, and you know that the best way to get to the truth is to ask short, powerful questions with strong, powerful follow-up questions. Uh, but it seems these hearings become for for many of the senators, they become this opportunity to pontificate and bloviate and try to capture a soundbite so they can get on uh, the evening news or uh, share it on their social media. How how do we turn it into a real hearing? Uh, before the American people, which I think is also important. Well, that requires restraint on the part of U.S. senators. And, you know, there are all kinds of jokes about the dangers of giving a floor or a microphone to a U.S. senator. You might never hear the end of it. Uh, But, yeah, it does require some restraint. I remember, uh, Boyd, about 12 years ago when um, my former boss, Justice Alito, was going through his confirmation hearings. Um, I, I was listening to some of the proceedings. And I started keeping track of how long some of the senators would speak. In a typical committee hearing, um, you might have senators each taking five minutes, sometimes six or seven minutes, to ask questions of a particular witness. Uh, Many times that's extended to seven, eight, or even ten minutes uh, with respect to a Supreme Court nominee. And in some instances, we've seen individual senators using their entire time allocated just to speak so that it ends up not being a question and answer period at all, but an opportunity to give speeches. I don't think that's really all that helpful. Obviously, that's up to each senator how to use his or her time. But I think it's more helpful when the nominee is allowed to provide answers and there's a real exchange of information. Always, always best to have a, a, a real dialogue going in, in these hearings and, and this confirmation process, which, which sort of leads us to the, uh, the real political questions. Uh, we're, we're not even 15 hours into this nomination, and you, you've had uh, both the left and the right have staked out their claims. The, the demonization uh, of Judge Kavanaugh has begun by many on the left. Uh, the defense has started on the right. Both sides seem to be raising a lot of money <laughs> for campaign coffers uh, off it. Uh, where do we or how do we really get to the uh, the heart of the matter on this and, and make sure that the political rhetoric doesn't uh, obscure us from really determining the qualifications of the judge? Okay. Uh, the, the answer to that is a little bit complex. Let me explain what I mean by that. In the first instance, yes, it's a political process. And and by design, it's political. This is built into the Constitution to be political. Uh, U.S. senators are uh, subject to election through a, a political process designed by the Constitution itself. So it's necessarily going to be political, and, and it's by design. It's so that people, in theory, can have some input into how uh, Supreme Court justices and others are chosen. On the other hand, I, I see what you're saying about the excess, uh, excessive um, extent to which uh, this has become polemical. It, it has become uh, kind of an over-the-top uh, political exercise. And I think that in turn can be addressed by understanding the proper role of the courts. Again, if we were following uh, more faithfully and consistently 
the, the way the Constitution sets up the differences between the three branches of government. I don't think the judiciary would be as contentious an issue as it was. And in fact, if you go back in the past, you'll find example after example of where Supreme Court justices were confirmed uh, by voice vote. And as you know, Boyd, the voice vote in the Senate is a term used uh, in contrast to a roll call vote, where the assumption is that the, the vote isn't quite close enough that you need to put each and every member uh, down on the roll to figure out where everybody is. So back in the days before the court started acting like a legislator and uh, like a legislative body in many instances, uh, it was less excessively controversial than it is now. And I think we can solve some of that on our own by explaining what the court is, and what it isn't, what it does, what it's never supposed to do. So so on the the actual vote itself, uh, many of the, uh, the the media and the prognosticators have have really focused on Senators Collin and Murkowski uh, as, as sort of more moderate and, and more likely to maybe have an objection. Um, some others are starting to say that maybe uh, Senator Paul, who has some questions about uh, both the Judge Kavanaugh's rulings on Obamacare and uh, even some Fourth Amendment things in terms of uh, data collection, um, might be kind of the sleeper uh, in terms of someone who could uh, slow down the, the process for Judge Kavanaugh. Sure, that could happen. And with margins as thin as ours are in the Senate right now, I mean, we, the Republicans have a 51 to 49 um, majority. And with Senator McCain um, uh, in the health condition, which he sadly finds himself right now, it, it really ends up being 50 to 49. And so we have um, no real margin there to speak of. Um, and as a result of that, I think just about any portion of the Senate Republican conference, if we're not united, could end up throwing a big wrench in this cog. I think if Republicans stick together, we may well get three or four or even more Democrats um, joining with us to confirm the nominee. Uh, but if we start to splinter even a little bit, we could run into some real trouble. But what I'm getting at here, boys, I don't think at the end of the day you're going to see Republican defections. Now, I, obviously, there is a process and we're going to follow that process, and we, we've got to re- review Judge Kavanaugh's writings and uh, ask questions and have those questions answered. But barring something that I'm not foreseeing right now, I do think he will be confirmed, and I think he'll be confirmed with all Republicans voting for him and probably a few Democrats. And give us a little a little time frame on that. I, I know that the Senate is not taking the, the typical – August recess that you'll be taking one week uh, early in the month, and then we'll actually be working on uh, a lot of the budgetary items. Uh, when do you anticipate hearings beginning, and when do you think uh, the judge actually could be confirmed to the Supreme Court? Um, in modern history, the window has tended to be anywhere from about 50 days to about 90 days from nomination to confirmation. Um, and I think with Justice Gorsuch, it was uh, kind of uh, closer to the higher end of that range. Um, I expect that we are likely to have hearings. could happen. I don't want to speak for Chairman Grassley, uh, but I I would imagine right now hearings are most likely to occur in early to mid-September. And my hope is that we'll have a final floor vote um, in time, certainly before the election this fall, but I would hope by the end of September. And here's the reason. The court convenes for each year's annual session um, on the first Monday in October. And I, I think it's important for, we, for us to get the new justice confirmed 
before that happens, it's it's better than having the justice uh, confirmed after the court starts hearing arguments again, uh, because that could create some inconvenience on the court. Not the end of the world, but I do think we'll get it done somewhere in that range, I, I hope, between now and the end of September. Just a couple of uh, rapid-fire questions as we uh, come down just our, our last minute or two with you here, Senator Lee. Um, some people have raised the question, be- because this does become such a hyper-political issue, uh, some people have started to wonder, you know, is there, should there be a, a term limit, uh, an age term limit in terms of uh, members of the court? Uh, would that help to take some of the uh, pressure out of the political exercise? I don't think that would make the difference. I I don't necessarily see term limits on the court as being the answer to anything. If anything, it it might accelerate uh, some of the politicization that we've seen surrounding the court because you have uh, nominations and confirmation proceedings occurring with a little more frequency rather than less. I don't really think that's the answer. I, I, I believe that the Constitution set it right when it gave judicial officers within our federal system, including members of the Supreme Court, lifetime tenure during good behavior, meaning as long as they don't do something bad, bad enough for them to be impeached and removed, uh, then they stay on there for life. And the reason for that is they are not supposed to be subject to the political will and whim of the day. Once they've been nominated and confirmed, um, and gone through that political process, which is itself conceitedly and quite intentionally political. Once they've been through that, they're not supposed to have to go through that again. And I think that's a good thing. I think that's part of what keeps our system in balance is that we have neutral arbiters to decide what the law means. And where you've got multiple parties coming together, they can't agree as to what a particular statute or provision of the Constitution means. Uh, that's where the courts come in. All right. And as a as a longtime court watcher, uh, what's the one thing you wish every American really understood uh, about the court, whether that's the process or the people uh, or what happens within those chambers? What is it that you wish everyone could really know and understand? It's a fascinating place. And, and you know, like most people, I've been watching Supreme Court arguments for fun since I was about 10 years old. Um, it, it is uh, or should be one of America's great pastimes. It's a, it's a fascinating experience. One thing that I don't think I fully appreciated until I worked at the Supreme Court as a law court to Justice Alito is the fact that each justice, um, each justice that I interacted with while working in the court, certainly, and I think it's still true today, genuinely does uh, work hard and genuinely wants to uh, resolve the issues at hand in the right way. They don't always agree on what the right outcome is. But they work really hard in maintaining a very high degree of professionalism. And um, I think that's important for people to recognize. Something that goes along with that is you you often have deep friendships among Supreme Court justices, including friendships from strange among and between strange bedfellows like um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg and uh, the late Justice Antonin Scalia were among the best of friends. They, they and their spouses traveled together all over the world. Uh, they did things together on weekends. And there's a lot of collegiality that goes in with the court. And they, they do their jobs with a high degree of professionalism. 
even when I don't agree with them, I have to admire the craftsmanship that goes into each of their opinions, which are very thorough. Excellent. Get, and give us just one, uh, give us one fun memory uh, from your time, either uh, working in the court or observing, even going back to observing your dad argue before the Supreme Court. What's a, what's a memory that stands out? Okay, one memory, if you're wanting something that's fun to hear. I used to, when I was really young, um, I, I sometimes found that watching Supreme Court arguments was a little bit like going to church in a foreign language. Uh, you know, you, ha- you have to be really reverent, you have to sit up straight, uh, you can't talk, and you don't always understand what's going on if it's in a foreign language. So, especially when I was really young, I would watch for cues about what was going on. And, and over time, I realized that there were certain justices um, who shall go unnamed in this conversation who were likely to fall asleep. And each time I went to an argument, I'd start to make bets with myself about which justice would fall asleep first, how long they'd remain asleep, and whether the lawyer arguing at the time would be bombarded with the question um, uh, somewhat irrelevant to the case when that justice woke up. It, it was an interesting game to play. Fantastic. All right, Senator Mike Lee, thanks so much for joining us on uh, Therefore What. We appreciate your service and walking us through what will be a fascinating process uh, at the U.S. Supreme Court. Thanks, Senator. Thank you. Therefore What. You know, sitting in and listening to Senator Lee today, there were several things that, that jumped out at me. When, when he started talking about the difference between will and judgment, I think that's an important therefore what for all of us to, to really recognize that it's the legislative branch that is supposed to be about will and that the judicial branch is just about judgment. And we should never confuse those. Uh, and as citizens, as we start to really recognize the proper role of each of the branches of government so that we don't have the legislative branch abdicating and giving power to the executive branch or the executive branch handing power over to the judicial branch so that you have activist judges uh, writing law and creating law instead of just judging law. I think that's really important for all of us to understand. Uh, I think another therefore what uh, listening to Senator Lee Uh, was that we really do need to get this into a hearing. (laughs) I think we all need to call on our members of the United States Senate to ask questions of Judge Kavanaugh and then show some restraint and actually listen so that we do have a dialogue. But that's going to require all of us to, uh, to weigh in a little bit, uh, to call our senators and to let them know, hey, we want you to ask questions uh, about proper role and, and what that really means. And I think if we can do those two things, that's uh, a good therefore what for this week uh, to engage, to make sure you understand the proper role of each, to recognize that it is simply to judge is, is what this is really all about and that kind of restraint and then making sure we have a real hearing so we can get past all of the political posturing, all of the fundraising that's going on and make sure that this is a process that all of us can be proud of as Americans. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you download your podcasts. Follow us on DeseretNews.com forward slash podcast and subscribe to our newsletter. Don't miss an episode of Therefore What.